Greetings, folks, and welcome back to The Africanist, your favorite podcast. I am your host, Bambanjai, and today I'm back uh, with another special episode and with another special guest. And today I have the pleasure to actually co-host this podcast with uh, a good friend of mine and a colleague, uh, Dr. Nicholas MacLeod. Dr. Nicholas MacLeod is uh, uh, an assistant professor of history at Ryder University. Dr. MacLeod, thank you for co-hosting this episode of the Africanist podcast. Absolutely, Brother Bomba. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So I wanted to host this with uh, Nick because, you know, this person means a lot to me, but to both of us. He was part of our dissertation committee. He actually co-chaired my dissertation committee. I want to name Dr. Tyler David Fleming. And Dr. Fleming is an associate professor of history at the University of Louisville. Nick, what more can you tell us about Dr. Tyler Fleming? Uh, well, outside of his rank, uh, I definitely have to have to say that this is a special moment for me as well. Uh, Tyler's both of our mentors um, played a huge role in getting us to where we are in our careers right now. Um, and so he's been at uh, the University of Louisville in both history and Pan-African studies uh, for quite some time now. Um, has had a, a, a role in, in mentoring the, the careers of uh, a lot of grad students. Um, and uh, his guidance is invaluable. Um, so some of his research interests are in the history of Africa and the African diaspora, um, but he focuses more specifically on um, Black South African pop cultures, mainly music, sport, literature, and theater during the 20th century. And uh, most recently, um, he's published the book that we're going to be talking about today. And his book is entitled Opposing Apartheid on Stage, uh, King Kong the Musical. And I want to next seize this occasion to give a big shout out to also Professor uh, Masolo, who is right now probably following us from uh, Kenya. And uh, a shout out to Professor uh, Moena Kusi Logan and, you know, all uh, the professors at uh, the University of Louisville. Uh, so we're going to start with the first question. Today's interview will be focused on uh, Dr. Fleming's book, uh, Opposing Apartheid on Stage, but also your research agenda in general. What is the central idea of your book, Opposing Apartheid on Stage? And how does this musical grapples with the apartheid system in South Africa? Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's, it's an honor to be here. I, I'm very nervous, uh, in part because uh, two people I respect very much are on the other side grilling me. So um, I imagine I'll be uh, receiving lots of uh, tough questions and uh, um, maybe payback from your dissertation defenses. Um, so uh, what, what I try to do in this book is essentially... Um, um, essentially offer a biography of a jazz musical's life and um, kind of tell the larger story and the, expose the, the larger significance of this jazz musical, uh, King Kong, which is not based on the um, cinematic uh, oversized gorilla, but uh, on a heavyweight box, local heavyweight boxer in South Africa, uh, Ezekiel King Kong Flamini. Um, and so what I try to do in this book is look at the musical at, in different layers or expose different layers of the musical from the inspiration, the life of King uh, Ezekiel King Kong Flamini um, to the Re rehearsal stage, the creative stage, and the uh, interracial interactions that happened during that during that time, to its reception in South Africa, to the tour of the musical in uh, Britain in 1961, to the lives of the performers in exile, uh, both in Britain and in the United States throughout the 1960s to 1980s, and uh, lastly. 
um, looking at a um, a pretty disastrous remake of the musical that happened in 1979. Um, I think my main aims in the music in the the book are to kind of um, reinject Africa in kind of our thinking of the Black Atlantic, and in particular to kind of put a story out there that centers Africa rather than um, rather than uh, like Paul Gilroy's book is really terrific and, and excellent, but it oftentimes Africa is left as an imaginary space, uh, a space that is projected upon, but not necessarily active in Black Atlantic dialogues. And so that's one key aim of the book. I think another is to kind of um, rehash and show the importance, the central importance of South African cultural history in mm. um both in South Africa, but but also abroad. And lastly, uh, just try to make one kind of drop in the bucket of carrying forth the the memories of those involved in the project, in in the musical, and um, and their significance in uh, both South African but larger history. The second question was about the apartheid system. So for the the musical itself. It is happening in 1959, and so about 11 years since the uh, apartheid really is first enacted. And so it's happening at a really interesting moment in South African history, um, and the constraints on the production are pretty severe. And so, um, like, there, there couldn't be an interracial cast. Like, you couldn't have white actors with black actors and so mm. um uh but also um the constraints of kind of south african show business at this time um um kind of limit the interactions of uh africans in really the directing roles and things like that apartheid is threaded throughout my project um though the musical itself does not directly confront apartheid Mm-hmm. Um, it oftentimes exposes a lot of the symptoms that come from apartheid, whether it's poverty or crime or kind of uh, the constraints put on black peoples under apartheid. The sh- the musical itself, um, in order to kind of get staged and be successful, uh, sort of si- sidesteps directly confronting apartheid, um, though the production itself. Uh, confronts apartheid in other ways where like um, the Union of Southern African Artists, which ultimately produces the show, um, demands that the show has to be uh, staged in front of interracial interracial audiences, integrated crowds. Mm. Uh, and so that that itself is groundbreaking in South Africa at that particular moment. The constraints put on the show are there, uh, whether, whether that means um, trying to um, tr- trying to arrange transportation for the cast and orchestra uh, that are all Afri- African or colored um, or of multiracial descent. They they need to commute into, into the city past apartheid curfew laws. And so the musical has to the production has to arrange for transportation to go to African townships to pick pick people up and drop people off. The rehearsals take place at night so so that they can basically stay all night and, and avoid a lot of uh, curfew problems, avoid the police, et cetera. And so there's a there's a lot of layer, a lot of ways that apartheid is a player in this larger story, though though the musical itself does not directly confront apartheid in its, in its subject matter. Thank you very much for that answer, Prof. Nick? So I I, I want to kind of um, piggyback off of that, um, talking about how, you know, apartheid is really um, the, symptom of, the symptoms of apartheid are, are revealed through the play itself. Um, and I like the way that you mentioned that um, the book is more so a biography of the play itself. Mm. Um, that's a great way of putting it because you you call our attention um, less so to um, what the actual play 
is about and, and, and how apartheid and all these social issues surrounding um, the play itself contribute to the process of actually putting it on, formulating it from the beginning, finding producers, directors, and the cast itself. And um, you actually call attention to a lot of things about the cast, especially, right? You talk about how um, most of these artists Right. They're not being paid well on the same scale as um, white artists at this time. So they have to work day jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have to come and practice at night, like you mentioned. And like you said, you you that they had to arrange for these shuttle buses to, mm -hmm. to get people into urban parts of the cities to, to actually do rehearsals and out. And so navigating the apartheid system while trying to to um, you know put on this play was a huge thing. And you mentioned at one point they had to procure these King Kong passes mm. um, to, I guess, um, help facilitate their movement, right? Calling attention to how movement is restricted for these people. Uh, was there any story behind the King Kong passes and uh, actually how they were acquired? So the King Kong pass originates from basically um, the Union of Southern African Artists having to figure out a way to get the cast um, to rehearsals in a pretty regular manner um they had some uh, occasions where um some of the artists uh whether in the orchestra or actors in the in the play itself um were arrested um and so essentially the king kong pass became a way to kind of let the police know that these africans that were out were out past curfew were allowed to be there. And I th think that basically originates from the need of the musical to get people there on time. But beyond that, the experience of the union in its previous uh, uh, events kind of um, needed to confront similar issues. And so they knew about the need for these, uh, for these passes um, but beyond that, the apartheid state itself, many ministers of parliament, um, but also central figures in the apartheid regime, uh, thought that this musical could be used as good PR for the apartheid state. And so you had folks higher up that were willing to kind of go to bat for the musical and um, in a way that's kind of surprising. Um, that uh, when thinking about it now, um, uh, and and you you see this quite a bit not in the King Kong passes but in the cast application for a for passports, um, which was done in in mass, um, and um, and you see these individual bureaucratic officers in Bantu affairs Bantu affairs in scare quotes, but that was what it's called at the time basically um writing on their interviews that these africans would be negatively impacted by going to britain and experiencing a place that has less regimented racialized laws and so initially expressing hesitancy or downright rejecting folks passports but it was through members of the um, apartheid state higher up that basically pulled strings to allow the musical to get the passport. And so that in some ways, the musical was pushing at an open door from the apartheid state um, in, in the fact that they wanted it to take place. They thought that this musical would be a good way to, good PR for essentially se separate development that Africans would be making their own plays, producing their own entertainment, and that this could be used as PR for the apartheid state and its grand vision. Um, kind of disregarding the interracial dynamics that were happening in the play, um, also dis kind of disregarding what many people inside the play, both participation, participating and those that were in director directorial roles, uh, saw this as taking a good swipe at apartheid by kind of showing black success, black joy, black talent in front of interracial audiences um, that were disproportionately white. And so 
basically you've got this weird moment where this play is both anti-apartheid, but those inside the apartheid state thinking that it could be used to legitimate apartheid. Just to follow up on that, um, you know, using it to further the, the the legitimacy of the apartheid state, you mentioned in the book how while the entire cast was all African, most of the directors, producers were typically white, yeah. right? And eventually this comes to be sort of promoted as a model for essentially legitimizing this colonial dynamic of white supervisors, right, directing um, Africans in this this larger colonial project. Do you think that probably had something to do with um, the granting of these King Kong passes and like the, um, I guess, the more of a willingness to, to grant like passports and those sorts of things, like having this white oversight over this African product? I think so. Um... It, it's it's interesting because some of the people involved are overtly political and will eventually get banned in South Africa, will um, even become involved in the Koto um, Wisizwe, um, will, uh, will be um, the arm wing of the ANC, uh, will be part of the armed struggle in certain ways. Um, Arthur Goldreich in particular is arrested uh, alongside Nelson Mandela um, and uh, those uh, um, on the lily leaf uh, farm. And so it's this interesting kind of dynamic. It's, I think, in some ways, the apartheid state being naive or having its blinders on, but also being comfortable with those dynamics and seeing it as recognizably something that could happen. Um, and at the same time, the apartheid state is, um, in some ways, uh, some of its thinking and its notions are built upon like Jim Crow America, right? And um, uh, this play itself um, kind of looking a lot and feeling a lot like Porgy and Bass would kind of uh, a product of America being used as propaganda for things being merry in South Africa. Um, and so I think in some ways, uh, there's a lot of aspects to this that allow it to happen. So another important aspect of the, the book, Opposing Apartheid on Stage, was I suggest to my audience to, uh, to buy and read. It's really a, a delight. Uh, University of Rochester Press 2020. I'll make a quick plug that um, mm -hmm. it, the price it's still pretty pricey at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, what one good thing, one good route to do um, if you can't afford to buy the book is to request that your library purchase it, and yes. so that way, that way um, you can enjoy it uh, for free. So excellent. One thing you talk about, given the context in which uh, the musical was produced, apartheid and the racialized state, how important was it for the cast to be South African actors and, and singers writ large? So for the domestic run, it basically had to be locals. Um, mm -hmm. There was no way for it to be foreigners and to be doable um uh when the negotiations are happening for the play to happen to be taken to britain in 1961 mm -hmm. uh, early on the um the producer the promoter of the 61 tour um is considering um uh, very much considering hiring basically african um, Afro-Caribbean and Afro-British actors to basically pl pl 
to be in the play and um, basically make up the cast because that seemed more doable than getting an entire African cast to South to Britain uh, from South Africa. Um, the muse, the Union of Southern African Artists, um, but all all those in power in this decision kind of put their foot down and really kind of were adamant that the play would lose a lot of its life, a lot of its vitality. Um, if, if it didn't have a South African cast. Um, and that part of the argument for that was that they believed that the cast and the orchestra uh, deserved a chance at going to over overseas. Um, and that that was in the plan. So the idea of uh, kind of giving up giving up that vision um, just to get the musical stage overseas was very much something that the those on the South African side were very much unwilling to kind of do away with. I think beyond that, I think for the show itself, that, that argument that it would lose vitality, it would lose the essence of the musical is very much on point. Um, if you had um, folks that didn't speak um, um, African languages, that they would they would be some some of the songs would be really hard to do. Um, some of the dialogue would be really hard to do, um, and just wouldn't kind of have the vibe that was Sophia Town and Black Joburg during this time. Um, there is some toying with this notion. There are rumors. Um, that when King Kong is supposed to go to Broadway, which never happens, but um, basically what happened was during its overseas tour in Britain, the latter months of the musical did not do so well. Early on, they're doing pretty well. Uh, there's talk of going to Broadway. Uh, but as the returns on tickets are not really meeting the box office marks that folks in Broadway are looking for, uh, the decision that basically the decision to offer a contract to the musical is 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 made and the decision is King Kong won't tour over in the United States. But while those negotiations are going on, there's a lot of rumors that Harry Belafonte would would be cast as the lead as King Kong, um, basically in part because there was rumors that Mary McCabe, who played the the female lead, um Joyce was going to come back to the to the play um she was the female lead in the domestic production uh but not in the British version and there was talk that she she be, she essentially during that time as King Kong's on um in London in 1961 she is making a name for herself in the United States and is becoming very popular and in part because of the mentorship, the um, opportunities afforded to her by Harry Belafonte, and they are uh, performing quite a bit as a duo. And so there's some thought that Harry Belafonte will take over as the as the lead, the lead to King Kong, and that she would naturally be the female lead. Though those are mostly rumors. I couldn't substantiate a lot of that. I did have a chance at... Um, at one point to at briefly ask Harry Belafonte if he was ever in discussions uh, to become the lead of King Kong. And he told me no. He, uh, and he kind of shook his head like that was that's kind of a ridiculous thought, um, though it's not clear whether or not his production team, his managers or something like that may have been in certain initial negotiations. Excellent. Interesting. Nick? You mentioned that uh, the play was not overtly um, political, mm. and when when you think about the times that this that this um, play is coming out, obviously it comes out in 1959. It's like the same time when a raisin in the, a raisin in the sun comes out, uh -huh. uh, and and of course you know plays like this definitely may not be trying to be overtly political, but there are definitely political implications when white audiences are for the first time getting a gaze into Black life. 
right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, um, there's a, a hope for some sort of understanding to come from this, right? And so um, there's a, this sort of calls attention to this debate between Du Bois and Elaine Locke, right? The place um, of politics and art, right? Um, doesn't have to be there, right? Um, and so I'm guessing from a, I'm, I'm wanting to ask from a creative standpoint, um, what do you think the goals of the play were to convey some sort of uh, story with political implications, right? Showing a unified South Africa, um, or was it just to show a black story um, from a black perspective? So I think it depends on who you ask. Um, I think first and foremost, the, um, the goal of the musical was to get staged, right? And so if it overtly criticized apartheid, it would not, uh, the apartheid state presumably would have banned it and it wouldn't have seen the light of day. Um, beyond that, you potentially could alienate um, white audience members, which um, I think the, many of those in King Kong wanted, wanted to stage it in front of interracial audiences, but in particular wanted to impress uh, white audiences that basically had money to buy buy tickets, right? And um, and so I think there's that. I think there's a, a push in some way for for some in the cast to push forth like notions of respectability and to demonstrate the black talent that is in South Africa and that most white South Africans and many other South Africans um, don't know about um, or underappreciate. Or the, another notion would be to kind of put black art on the same level as white theater, right? And so that would itself be a symbolic victory and kind of a shot at apartheid. I think the, another goal of the musical is to get overseas. And so I think they very much cater to that. Um, they very much look towards being successful so that they can get overseas. And ultimately, a lot of the goal for particularly a lot of those in the cast and orchestra is to get to America, which uh, for them was kind of the jazz center of the world. Um, um, I think for many, the idea of taking aim at the symptoms of apartheid and doing so on stage and doing so in front of multiracial audiences was a, another symbolic victory uh, going on there. Um, another aspect is that I think many in the play wanted it to be more political, but knew, knowing that there were constraints on what they could do content-wise. Um, in the book, I mentioned um, there's one scene and um, with a song that does not appear in the play itself. Um, I'm not too sure when this was written, whether that it was written for the 1959 version or for the 1961 tour overseas. Um, but that um, the lyrics to this song that doesn't make it into the play kind of indicates a little bit about how many of these participants, both white and black, wanted to make, make the production more political. It's got some kind of throwaway kind of bubblegum lines. Uh, I can rumba with, with Lumumba. I can tango in Katanga. I can, we'll sell Koba in Angola. But there's... As the song continues, it takes a much more, more radical um, stance. And it's like, just send Nasser to, to Mombasa, Dr. Banda to Uganda, leave Mboya in the foyer of the United Nations, see? And Walensky and Vervoord, send them down into the foot to the last final bend to the very bitter end of that deep, deep hole in Kimberley. Let Rhodesia have a seizure. There's the idea of Vivord uh, and Walensky being uh, sent to the deep hole in Kimberley, right? That to, for like a burial. Um, that in itself, I think, 
though that never those words never make it into the play and are kind of left on the cutting room floor gives gave me a sense that there was some of this folks some of these folks in the production particularly those writing the lyrics coming up with the music um were looking for ways to get at and confront apartheid <laughs> So I think one thing that you're starting to get into here um, is part of the political component of it, at least the part that didn't make it into the play. Mm. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is how was the play itself connected to the rest of the African continent or the African diaspora? Or, um, and also if there were any um, Pan-African sentiments espoused by the play and its cast because i saw you mentioned uh, about lumumba and contenga um mm -hmm. and so i was just wondering if there were any other components to that so a lot of um a lot of members of the production were um were either formally or informally um uh participants in uh like the, the communist party uh, um others were supporters of the ANC, like the Manhattan brothers had uh, one, one issue that they had in getting passports originally um, to go overseas was that they did a fundraising fundraising concert for the ANC at one point. Um, and so you've got those kind of political sentiments bubbling on in the background. Um, in terms of the rest of the African continent, um, there's not too many. There was a proposed, um, early on, there was intention to bring the play to Zimbabwe. Um, there was talk that that was going to happen, uh, or Southern Rhodesia at the time, but presently Zimbabwe. But also there were, I found examples of when the play was staged uh, particularly in London, of uh, African periodicals in places like Ghana, Nigeria, um, elsewhere, were um, championing the play, were um, celebrating that it was happening and seeing it as a success story for Africans. Uh, beyond that, um, particularly in the afterlives of the performers, uh, you see these connections to the larger African continent. Um, uh, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but uh, Tom Magikiza at one point, um, his widow Esme had told me, um, Tom Mboya uh, from Kenya had reached out to him personally um, to and told him that they were intending for Tom Magikiza to help write the national anthem for Kenya. And so there's that. There's Marion Makeba, who tours throughout the African continent throughout the 60s and 70s, relocates to Guinea, um, speaks on uh, at the UN, is a member of the UN, the Guinea's, uh, the Ghanaian um, um, uh, UN uh, contingent. Uh, and she's speaking to the UN, not just uh, about South Africa and apartheid, but also on issues related to the rest of the African continent. And so you've got these connections and these layers that happen throughout, um, particularly afterwards, um, after, uh, the, the, after the, the cast and the orchestra's involvement in the play, when they're in exile, um, when many of them choose to go into exile rather than return to apartheid South Africa, Many of them look to the African continent to kind of inspire them musically, um, to uh, invigorate their politics. They're, um, they're going to Festac in Nigeria. They're um, visiting uh, relatives and comrades in Angola and Zambia, et cetera. Um, and so the connections are there quite a bit, um, less so in the play itself. Excellent. So I am going to 
ask a question from one of your good friends and colleagues. This is coming from Dr. Daniel Porter Sanchez, uh, who is uh, also an assistant professor of history at uh, Colorado College. And I'm going to read the question. One of the things I love about your book is that understanding of Delamini happens in a few different ways. Readers are able to get a sense of his life and the ways that people internalized him as a boxer and celebrity. How did you untangle these two different aspects of his life, the more biographical side and the way he was internalized slash imagined while working on the project? And so uh, like the, um, when I first started on this project, I, I was just looking at the musical itself and the lives of the performers. Um, and then I was like, well, let me, um, let me do something about Ezekiel Flamini. And I started off basically of the accounts of those that, kind of projected the imagined Flamini, this larger than like for folks that haven't read the book or are interested, um, Ezekiel Flamini is seen as this oversized, um, unbeatable champion, this kind of fierce guy with kind of this unpredictability about him. Um, that is kind of this fierce, tough guy who doesn't, uh, who's from the rural areas, but he's, in this flashy, um, fast city of Joburg and, um, and confronts kind of gangsters regularly, um, does not kind of kowtow to a lot of the parameters put on many black migrants into South, into Joburg at this time. And so, um, He's inter internalized or imagined as this unbeatable champion, this unpredictable person. And um, what started to happen was I started working my way backwards from that. Um, and so I started with those internalized visions. And then I was like, well, let me see if I can construct his boxing record. And... From there, I started noticing that he had lost quite a few fights. And that, or, and then I figured out that he didn't have that many fights, in part because there weren't many black heavyweights in South Africa during this time. Um, and so that added another layer to it. And so I just kept working, at, and I've been very blessed that I was able to do oral interviews, but also I was able to spend a lot of time in South Africa going through South African periodicals at the time, um, from the time, as well as there's a lot of appearances of Ezekiel King Kong Flamini in different memoirs and autobiographies by other South Africans. And so that's where I started to kind of get other people's started to peel away at this imagined kind of township hero or this myth to more of who this guy was regularly. And so when I was looking at the arrest, the accounts of his arrests, um, I started to think about that his, it, whether or not his erratic behavior was um, not boastfulness, but maybe of mental illness. Um, and um, the notion that he, um, after he's arrested for, murdering his girlfriend um he ultimately is sentenced not to death but um sentenced to a lengthy sentence and dies in prison and it seems like he takes his own life um there's accounts from folks inside the prison that tell this uh, and so um that kind of was another kind of flashpoint for me of uh maybe maybe he he um is suffering from something uh, beyond just grief, but uh, maybe uh, some sort of mental health crisis. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to stumble on one of his arrest records um, and the trial of 
him and when he uh, murdered a gangster and arguably in self-defense. And so I was able to kind of grasp, get at some of his justifications for what he did and things like that. So uh, every kind of source that I was lucky to stumble upon helped peel back a layer of Flamini's life and kind of gave me, allowed him, allowed him to be multifaceted and more complex to me than what the township myth was kind of presenting him as and uh, what the popular popularly held myth was that was particularly enhanced by the musical happening. The, when Once the musical happens, people kind of conflate the life of Ezekiel Flamini with that of the King Kong character in the play. And so, and so working with sources before the musical, I was able to kind of tease out certain layers and hopefully I did it well of projecting kind of um, a biography of Ezekiel Flamini himself. Nick, should we go to the next special question? Sure. We've got um, a very special question from uh, another one of my mentors, Dr. Charlton Yingling. Um, he's uh, a professor at the University of Louisville as well, Department of History. Um, and his question is, uh, thinking beyond South Africa, what do we still stand to gain by studying the arts and performance in 20th century African history? And what do we stand to lose if we do not? Oh, Prof, oh. before you respond, I would like to say that Dr. Yingling's book also just came out, um, I think out of uh, University of Texas Press, if I'm not mistaken. We will have him on the podcast soon, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, that's terrific. Um, these questions are... are, are uh... It's it's amazing to hear people that that I love and that I respect uh, uh, having these questions. Um, well, studying African history itself, I think, is vital um, in giving another perspective, particularly for those that that are those in the United States, which tend to be most of my students. Um, um, I think I think in many ways when you hear about the politics of today, of how um, America being is a divided country, um, notions of race, but um, notions of difference and identity being kind of recast, uh, particularly along political lines at this moment, that um, I think the press and the general public by and large are mistakenly looking towards Europe as um, examples, for examples, like looking to Hitler and Mussolini for like strongman examples or notions of fascism. Whereas I think the, um, if you look to African, Latin American, and even Asian history, I think you get a better grasp on what's happening in America at this moment. Um, I think in a gives you a, a better appreciation of the struggles that um, African nations went through in their first couple decades of, of being independent states, um, whether that is um, ethnic tensions or um, civil war or um, the breakdown of bureaucratic systems. Um, we're seeing a lot of parallels of that in the United States today. Um, but also African performance and art. Um, I think there's something to, there's something value, valuable to study um, in that it gives us a glimpse of the everyday um, and that life and the enjoyment and the joy of everyday folks. Um, I think that is something that um, I constantly try to stress to my students because a lot of my students are so used to history being told uh, from the top, um, particularly involving kind of big men, right? Um, the big men of history, um, I think, but also uh, a lot of political actions, a lot of political sentiment, particularly that that is really popular 
um, is exposed to the arts. Uh, Dr. Baba Jai uh, does a great job of this with his project and how Yanomari uh, uses music, uh, uses graffiti art, uses the popular press to kind of project its own kind of protest movement. And so I think there's a lot of value uh, in studying the arts in different ways. Um, I think, I mean, what would American history be if you don't study the arts and cultures of those societies, right? Um, or uh, Br British society. It gives us another vi way, um, another lens to look at society in a way that is both popular and and to me just fantastic and interesting so and particularly oftentimes involves the youth which oftentimes get neglected um it's a, a good way to get at kind of youth culture excellent nick you do you want to also get the next question the next special question from uh dr mawena kosi logan shout uh, out to you dr mm -hmm. logan another one um <laughs> So Dr. Logan asks, where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years as a professor who teaches and does research having to do with race, particularly in the current climate of restrictions put on critical race theory, among other things? I don't know. I don't know. I think the future is uncertain. I think in one part working on Africa, I don't necessarily think the those actors who are oftentimes bad actors that want that are using critical race theory to the turn the phrase turn critical race theory to essentially be this blanket coverall of basically presenting a more accurate history. Um, I think in many ways they're focused in on um, particularly African American history or um, um, uh, uh, histories of queer folk, uh, um, Latinos in the United States, um, Asian Americans, that they that I think they're so focused on a nationalist project that they may forget or leave out Africa in their discussions. Um, the flip side is I could see um, what we see in Florida that's happening with Governor DeSantis and the attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I could see that uh, maybe potentially demand for my classes uh, could go up as, as folks push back against this or could go down if these policies are enacted elsewhere. Um, uh, I see a lot, I in academia in general, I see a lot of tensions coming I, uh, I envision a lot of tensions happening in the next decade or so as kind of the corporate university, the corporate takeover of the universities and the political, um, the use of universities and academia as a political punching bag um, or a political target um, is going to make it that it's going to be potentially, I, I think it, probably going to be a much more contentious path forward. Um, how how will I navigate that in the next 10, five, 10 years? I'm still working out myself. Um, I think that's kind of above my pay grade in many ways. Uh, I'm trying, I'm going to try my best to still present accurate versions of history and try to confront students thinking and try to show them the complexities of history and show them that African history is just as complicated, as logical, and as useful as any other type of history. Um, and that can give us perspectives on how we think about the world in different ways. Um, hopefully I will do it well. Hopefully I will uh, have the courage to stand up for a lot against a lot of these, uh, what I see are negative force forces coming upon uh, academia. But um, if I've learned anything from history is that uh, life is complicated. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, hopefully people, hopefully people like my former students will hold me to account. You bet we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> so thank you uh, to Dr. Logan for this thoughtful question. And thank you to Dr. Uh, Yingling and Porter Sanchez. So the next special question uh, comes from Dr. Kate Adelstein, uh, assistant professor at the University of Louisville School of Nursing and also known as your wife. <laughs> so it's a fun question. How do you manage your research and life with uh, Pig Wiggle, the dog, <laughs> Fergus, the, the other dog, Lily, the cat, and the chickens? Uh, and, and, uh, most important, most importantly, a wife and a, uh, one and a half year old daughter. Uh, yes. <laughs> when I first started this, I saw this job as a calling and that, um, it kind of, um, was my life and that, um, it's still very much as part of my life, but I'm also recognizing that, uh, there needs to be like some separation of your job from your job isn't just your life um i think a lot of us have realized this throughout the uh, pandemic but um in general just as maturing um and so i think that's part of it um but um how i i've got a lot of support at home so it's not it's not as difficult as 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 it was phrased in that question i think it m more so in uh, one this is one this is one aspect for the field of history, I think, is how to manage a research and teaching agenda, not just from the politics and the world changing around us, but also as universities are be becoming more and more um, unwilling to fund research um, and more, um, more and more unwilling to uh, put the investment so that um, faculty and graduate students and undergraduate students can um, travel, can present their research, can go to archives, can uh, become the scholars of the future that we need. Um, and so um, I've been lucky enough um, that I get a lot of my inspiration from my students, both my undergraduate and my graduate ones. Uh, I'm not just saying that just because of the audience here um so that helps carry me through the love and support i get at home uh helps with confront um any sort of challenges i face um and yeah i'll just uh stop at that yes oh thank you very much kate for that uh question and we are nearing the end of the podcast and nick we we, we want to go back to the traditional fun questions of the podcast? A couple fun questions. Uh, I might know a couple answers to these actually, but uh, the first we'll go with, what are your top three dishes? My top three dishes. Um, I think uh, these are probably not, not I uh, so I, I have very few axioms in life, but um, one axiom that I have is that food tastes better when somebody else makes it. Um, and that, um, so a lot of these dishes are dishes that I cannot make. Um, one is a goosey, uh, a goosey stew with fufu, um, always, um, livens my spirits and, um, um, so do you still go to Fumi's? I do. In Louisville? Yes. Uh, Fumi's, Fumi's is a staple of mine, uh. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm happy to give her a plug and a shout out. Um, I just got a gift Great restaurant gift certificate for her restaurant from my mother for Christmas, so uh, I'll be heading there soon. Excellent. Um, though it's not a dish, uh, ice cream is a heavy staple um, in my diet. Um, <laughs> okay, which one is your favorite flavor? Uh, ice cream flavor. I think uh, anything that has like a lot of chocolate in it tends to be my go-to um, uh, i was hoping you would say uh uh but a pecan uh, uh usually it's something that's got to be like overwhelmingly chocolate like so much so <laughs> okay, uh, that's good. 
And then I think uh, my last favorite dish probably is corned beef and cabbage, which I like quite a bit, um, which I make uh, more than um, my wife likes because it definitely um, causes the cabbage causes quite the smell in our house. <laughs> so how come you've never made any of those dishes for us, Nick? Oh, I right? Well, Nick, Nick's a vegetarian, so uh, can't do corned beef and cabbage. I, I think I, I thought I made you corned beef and cabbage, but I will make it for you next time you're in town. Okay. All right. So the other one is the other fun question. Top three places uh, on your bucket list. On my bucket list. Uh, well, first and foremost, I, uh, I think South Africa, just because I need to get back there um, to do my research. Um, and uh, because of the pandemic, I yeah. have uh, the pandemic and finishing my book and just life has gone in the way, also preventing me from going uh, this past summer. And so I'm really looking forward to hopefully going this summer. Um, um, it's kind of make or break for me. Um, I would really like to, one of the places I really would like to go to is St. Helena. Um, which is an itty bitty island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it, it's most famous for being the place where Napoleon was um, um, was exiled to, but um, it also was a site um, of exile for um, several um, Zulu uh, chiefs and royal figures. Um, during the uh, around the turn of the century um also um uh prisoners of war from the uh, anglo-boer war or the south african war depending on uh how you want to uh what your politics are um and um and so it's just this kind of remote island that um has a lot of connections to south africa and cape town in, in a lot of ways uh particularly to um the uh, black communities in Cape Town, there's a lot of connections to St. Helena. Um, and so that's kind of fascinated me quite a bit. Um, and then um, I would love to, um, I'm going to cheat and say two two places um, in West Africa that I would really like to go to is Nigeria and Senegal, um, just because I, um, I've dealt a lot with scholars from both those places and um, I and pretty scholars that are friends of mine and that are good friends of mine and that um, are as close as family to me. And so I very much would like to go to those places and check them out. And uh, um, it would be uh, a pleasure to go. So. Um, yeah, we should definitely go to West Africa this summer then. Uh, right, Nick, you in? I'm definitely down for that. <laughs> so I think um, as what's uh, ASAA and Africa is a country conference is in Accra in the summer. So we should all go and afterwards take a trip to Dakar and Nigeria. Sounds like a plan to me. All right. So the last one is top three novels. Top three novels. This yes. is a hard one for me to. Um, one that uh, one that really jumps out at me is George Seiler's um, "Black No More." Um, I really love that um, that novel um, and how it plays around with the absurdity of race. And uh, I remember reading it as an undergrad, and mm -hmm. that really kind of. Um, simply like blew my mind and really um, just brought me great joy in reading, which um, not many things you read in college bring you joy, right? And so um, it was definitely a novel that made me laugh out loud as an undergrad. So it always had a particular kind of place for me, a place um, uh, for me, like with a special place in my heart. Um, I think Peter Abraham's Mind Boy um, is a really good. Uh, I'm a real big fan of Peter Abraham's and his life and his work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
that is another and then um i i'll say another from undergrad that really jumped out at me um is um nadine gordimer's july's peoples i think as well there's a couple of novels i've got uh burning basically burning a hole in my bookshelf because i need to read those as well um though i i will say I, i'm also a huge fan of the walking dead graphic gra graphic novels all right and on that note nick do you have any concluding remarks just thanks uh thanks for joining us today thanks for um again being being the mentor um that we that we both needed through our uh graduate process um and uh yeah all the best i'm gonna say the same thing thank you the both of you for uh being on the podcast nick thank you for co-hosting it and uh it's a pleasure to be able to interview you know once mentor friend and uh dissertation co-chair on a platform like this so essentially friend friend of me hey yes <laughs> so this was uh this this episode means a lot to me and to nick as well thank you very much prof and i i don't say it enough but my dissertation committee really made my life easy during grad school you know as an international student uh I mean, just as a grad student, it's, it's, it can be challenging, but especially international students. And my dissertation committee was always, you know, making sure that I was doing well um, academically, but also mentally and socially, which I always really appreciate it. So thank you to you, uh, Dr. Fleming, uh, Professor Masolo, uh, Professor Logan and also Professor Suleiman Bashir Jain uh, at Columbia University. Any concluding remarks, Prof? Well, I want to, along this note, uh, I want to thank you both, uh, both for this podcast, which is, uh, it's been a great honor. Um, and uh, I'm, I've been excited, intimidated, scared. Uh, <laughs> and we, didn't, we didn't grill you. We did not grill you. No, I, I, I know, but I, I, um, also, um, I think it's because I respect both of you so much and that um, um, that it has been a joy to see your evolution as scholars, as people, um, and that you are missed dearly. Um, that one thing as an Africanist in the United States is that you very rarely have colleagues that work on Africa around you. Um, and so um, it can be an isolating task. Um, like I, for one, um, in the Department of History at University of Louisville, I am the only person that works on Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so um, it can be a lonely um, ordeal and that um, you were missed great, a great deal. You both uh, were fantastic students, but uh, more so uh, fantastic friends and colleague and a co colleagues that um, provided a lot of inspiration and got me through myself through some uh, difficult moments. And you were dearly missed. Um, and so I'm excited to see what comes forward, man. Um, uh, you both are badasses and. Uh, uh, if the world hasn't seen it yet, they will soon. So well, I'm sure Nick is. I'm learning how to be one, but you know, no. I'll get there. You guys are my source of inspiration. So you're the one. And oh, I just want to remind you to get Dr. Fleming's book, "Opposing Apartheid on Stage: King Kong, the Musical." It is an excellent book. Ask your library, librarian to order one. And uh, in 2023, we are going to try some new things here on the Africanist podcast. So we will have more co-hosting, but also we will try this new initiative uh, called uh, Academic News. So if you have uh, something great going on about your academic career or research agenda. If you publish something new, books, articles, op-ed, if you move to a different institution, all of that, you can reach out to the Africanist 
podcast, uh, send us an email or reach out to us through uh, Twitter or Facebook, and we will be happy to pass that along on the podcast and help promote your work, your research, your projects. So don't hesitate. If you have anything uh, you want the larger public to know about research-wise, teaching-wise, and all of that, uh, you can send it to us and we will air it on the podcast in our academic news segment. And on that note, I give you guys rendezvous next time for a another episode with another special guest. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. Luttons pour la paix. Condiamo Africa, mon lion. Maneggiamo Africa, moi sogno natan.